From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm your guest host, Megan Leach. I work on social justice and advocacy communications here at the conference. It was nuns, Sisters of St. Joseph to be exact, who first introduced me to Catholic social teaching. My high school was run by SSJs, and the curriculum was infused with their charisms and Ignatian spirituality. They taught that our faith draws us to the margins. And motivated by a radical love for humanity, it seeks liberation from unjust systems. We learned about women who lived these maxims, like Sister Thea Bowman, Sister Helen Prejean, Dorothy Day. Their prophetic witness blew my mind. They transformed how I viewed my faith and my responsibility as a citizen. Suffice it to say, I have always admired the leadership of Catholic women religious. So I was thrilled to interview Mary J. Novak for this episode. She's the new executive director of Network Lobby, a D.C.-based social justice advocacy organization formed by a coalition of Catholic nuns. While not a nun herself, Novak embodies a faith that does justice, the kind of roll-your-sleeves-up-and-get-to-work attitude that I learned first from the SSJs and later from the Jesuits. Novak's career has traversed the intersections of spirituality and justice. As a lawyer, she worked on environmental rights litigation and a death penalty appeal case. She was the founding board chair of Catholic Mobilizing Network, which is working to abolish the death penalty at the state and federal level. And most recently, she served as the associate director of Ignatian Formation at Georgetown's law school. Novak is animated by her faith. You can tell that her optimism and rugged determination spring from her belief in a God of justice. We talked about how her spirituality keeps her firmly grounded when it feels like our social and political landscape is tugging us in conflicting directions. Naturally, we shared our mutual love for the Congregation of St. Joseph, and she offered some advice for how Catholics can get involved and stay involved with Catholic social justice movements. Well, thank you, Mary Novak. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Megan. It's so good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I want to start off by discussing your Ignatian spirituality chops, uh, because you have a long history with Jesuit education. And I read that uh, you told Religion News Service that you consider yourself a contemplative in action and that your spirituality is, is grounded in Ignatian principles. So I'm curious, you know, how do you balance contemplation and action, especially, I think, in, in a world and in a current context that feels like it's, you know, pulling us in, in either direction, but not necessarily both? It's a great question. Being contemplatives in action is actually what Ignatian spirituality forms us to be. So after I did the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius in their 30-day silent form over 20 years ago, I have gone on an eight-day silent directed retreat each year, prayed the examine each day as part of my morning prayer practice, and worked with a spiritual director to grow in my relationship with God as a contemplative in action. I'm also an associate member of the Congregation of St. Joseph, a community of sisters who were founded in France in 1650. And being part of that community also helps me balance contemplation and action, as it is a congregation which is also inspired by Ignatian spirituality. They're their spiritual director, the common spiritual director of their founders was a Jesuit. So these are constants in my life and ground all of my action. And so I find that because of these practices, I have more clarity 
and more energy for engaging in the complexities of the 21st century life that you indicated, um, and especially in this last year. I should mention that uh, I I went to a Sisters of St. Joseph High School, so I, I have a very soft space in my heart for the Congregation of St. Joseph. Which high school did you go to? I went to the Mount in uh, Philadelphia, Mount St. Joseph Academy. So, yeah. Yeah, they have a very a soft space in my heart, as do, I think, most women religious. Indeed. indeed. <laughs> so... You know, as as you mentioned, I, I think especially 2020, the last the last year, maybe year and a half or so, has really I think put a spotlight on the the deep divisions and injustices in our society. And I think addressing these issues really feels like a monumental task, and it can feel so overwhelming. So, you know, as an advocate who has spent your life kind of working at the intersections of of many different issues of injustice, you know, how does your faith and spirituality keep you grounded and, and focused and motivated? So reflecting on the past year in particular, um, through the eyes of faith is actually the only, only way for me to stay focused and motivated. Uh, for example, because of my Catholic understanding of the apocalypse, I do not understand the year 2020 to be about the end times as some traditions do. Rather, I understand it as a year of uncovering what has always been there, inviting us to ask what is being revealed more fully. That is a very Catholic understanding of the apocalypse. And so the pandemic revealed more fully both how we are all connected and the terrible inequities that exist in so many of our systems from healthcare to economics, to education and access to education in, in particular. And then the lynching of George Floyd revealed more fully the systemic racism that is part of the US criminal legal system, which includes the policing of black bodies. So now all of this revelation is actually a blessing and that's also a Catholic perspective, because for the first time in my lifetime, we are talking openly about systemic racism and white supremacy in the United States. And we are talking about uh, their roots in the country's original sin of slavery. Again, another very Christian Catholic framing. And But this naming of our, our sinfulness is critical because what we do not name, we cannot address and heal, right? So with this naming of our collective sins, I see healing already beginning. And it is painful as all healing is, but that is the Paschal mystery operative in our world today, life, death, and resurrection. Um, so I'm, I'm really in awe of what is is being done across the country in the face of these revelations at the grassroots level and all the way up to the executive office of the president. So you've just stepped into this role as the executive director of, of Network Lobby, which I think, um, uh, you know, similar to, I think, our Office of Justice and Ecology tries to blend this approach of taking kind of a bird's eye view of of politics and social justice and, you know, like what, what does the Catholic tradition have to say about that with a very kind of pragmatic on the ground approach to policy. So I'm curious what sort of reforms um, or, or policies are you hoping to see in, in the coming years under the new Congress and, and the new presidential administration? 
So first, let's celebrate the passage of the American Rescue Plan Act, which passed last month. The 1.9 trillion coronavirus relief package, which included an expansion of the 2021 child tax credit, along with other measures, such as the impact payments of $1,400 for eligible family members. That will cut childhood poverty in half this year, according to an analysis done by the Center on Poverty and Social Policy at Columbia University. Um, as to what we at Network hope with the 117th Congress and the Biden-Harris administration going forward, it really comes first from our meeting and listening to people and families across the country, engaging in what Pope Francis calls the, the culture of encounter, which is really what Network has done since it was founded almost 50 years ago. At Network, our listening preferences people who are most often left out, women, people of color, people forced to the economic margins, and those at the intersections of all of those identities. And then inspired by Catholic social teaching, which calls us to be in solidarity with all people, especially those who are struggling, to uphold the dignity of each person as equally valuable, we announced in January a justice agenda for all of us called Build Anew. And so this build a new agenda has four cornerstones to dismantle systemic racism, to cultivate inclusive community, to root our economy in solidarity, to transform our politics. And so out of the, all of that grounding, uh, the policy areas network is working on are five, our economic security, healthcare, housing, and food policies, immigration and justice systems, our taxes, and democracy. So we don't have time to go through all of those, but I'm just going to touch on two that I think are really important. Democracy. So according to a new study out in the last two weeks from the democracy watchdog group Freedom House, the U.S. has experienced an unprecedented decline in democratic liberties because of our unequal treatment of people forced to the margins, the damaging influence of money in politics and increased polarization. However, the US is perched today to model a global path forward with HR1 and the companion bill SR1 for the People Act, which passed in the House in early March, which among other things, expands access to the ballot box. As of last Saturday, there, there are now 361 voter suppression bills introduced in 47 states that make it harder to vote. So the For the People Act addresses this by removing barriers to voting, limiting the influence of money in politics and establishing independent redistricting commissions. The For the People Act week of action actually began yesterday and Network is part of a faithful democracy coalition. So I invite your listeners to look that up and join in on the organizing um, for We the People. Um, the We the People Act and For the People Act. The other policy I want to mention addresses our very broken immigration system about which everybody is reading right now. And the House and Senate both have bills that are excellent movements towards a path for citizenship, to, a path to citizenship for millions of undocumented folks. That includes farm workers who are essential to so many of our economies, essential workers 
who we now are very clear how essential they are, right? Dreamers and other immigrants. Um, I could go into detail about them, but if you want to learn more about it, any of your listeners, Network's immigration specialist recently did a great webinar. Um, and so check our website for that webinar. And um, But it concludes her conversation or her description of the U.S. Citizen Act, the Citizenship for Essential Workers Act, Dreamers, uh, the Dream and Promise Act, and the Farm Workforce Modernization Act. Um, so really important pieces of legislation that are already been introduced into um, our various houses. Great. And if uh, folks uh, listening at home are interested, we'll put those links um, in the in the show notes so you can find them and, and follow them. Now, I want to um, rewind a little bit um, because I was I was reading up um, about you know some of your past work as as a lawyer um, and read that you had worked on California's death row um, pursuing a capital appeal for a man sentenced to death. Um, and this, you know, has then, I think, you know, influenced your work with Catholic Mobilizing Network as well. But I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about about this experience. Yeah, thank you for this question. Um, those years of going in and out of San Quentin in California to visit our client on death row and then to the legal work on his appeals, those were significant in my formation as a lawyer and in shaping my understanding of the criminal legal system operative in the United States. As you mentioned, it deeply um, animated my desire to be the founding board chair of the Catholic Mobilizing Network because that experience formed my understanding that the US criminal legal system is punitive for things that are treatable, like mental illness, drug abuse, early childhood trauma, it is not restorative. And I also learned that it is a system that treats our black and brown siblings far worse than it treats white folks like, like me. And so it was very early on in my legal career and it has irreparably affected me and the way I operate in the world in a good way. Can you talk a, a little bit about the the outcome of, of that case? Sure. Um, we lost on direct appeal all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And then we took the case to habeas under the old habeas rules, not under the new habeas rules. And we lost all the way up to the Ninth Circuit. There's one more appeal that you make, you can make, it's, it's discretionary uh, before you go back to the Supreme Court and it's going to the Ninth Circuit en banc. So to a much larger panel of judges. And we actually won at the Ninth Circuit en banc. And we, we won on a very rare um, issue, which is juror, juror misconduct. Um, so it, it's, it was a fascinating case, but it took 18 years, 18 years. Do you remember what it, it felt like when the case had, had closed? Like what, after 18 years, how did, how did that feel? Well, it wasn't over at 18 years because the, the Ninth Circuit on Banc sent it back down for a partial retrial. 
And I had moved to a different law firm at that point. So, and, and our incredible um, lawyer who led the case for the, the longest, who is now a judge in, in California, John Streeter, um, he then was part of the retrial of, of the case. Um, when it was finally over, it, it was anticlimactic in many ways because the big win for us as lawyers, we thought was the Ninth Circuit, but really the big win for our client was at the end of the retrial, which took another, I, I actually don't remember off the top of my head how many extra years that was, but he is finally living outside of prison. Um, so this is what we do to, in a, in our criminal legal system that is so, so has to be reformed. I know that restorative justice, and, and you mentioned that a little bit, is, you know, an interest for you. And you also have experience in, in peace building and, and conflict resolution. So I'm curious, you know, how this influences, you know, your approach to this new position with Network Lobby. Well, as you know, I think given your study, uh, restorative justice is part of the larger peace building framework. Um, and for me personally, restorative justice is how my Ignatian spirituality is lived out in all that I do. So restorative justice focuses on relationships, the harm that was caused, those who were harmed, and those who have the responsibility to address the harm. So completely different than the criminal legal system, right? Um, it will inform everything I do both internally to network as well as externally in what we do. Now, I have to say that this will be nothing new for network's superb team of advocates and network's members. Network operates has operated this way for 50 years because this is how women religious operate. They have not, in my experience, necessarily always called it restorative justice and peace building, but it is how they operate. And you know this from your experience with women religious in school. Um, and that's why women religious continue to inspire all that we do at Network. Yeah, as you mentioned, you know, Network was founded by women religious um, who are interested in, in federal advocacy you know, within the U.S., how do you, as a laywoman, approach your leadership role with Network? So, well, this is my second day as executive director. <laughs> so I'm going to get back to you on your first question. <laughs> um, but as for being a lay leader in the church broadly, I can speak to my most recent roles as the founding board chair of the Catholic Mobilizing Network and my role as the Associate Director for Mission Integration at Georgetown University Law Center. In each of these roles, I, I first understood myself as equally called to lead as my vowed and ordained sisters and brothers, because this is what was settled by Vatican II's universal call to holiness, and actually, when I discovered it in my study of theology, it really did change everything for me in my understanding of myself and my vocation, because I didn't uh, have the privilege of going to Catholic schools 
growing up, except for just two years before we ever were talking about vocation. Um, so I was in first and second grade. Um, but when I, I started studying theology and found the universal call to holiness, I realized that all of us are called uniquely in this life. And that really did change everything. I also approached both of my roles at the Catholic Mobilizing Network and at the law school at Georgetown through an Ignatian lens, which takes shape for me, as I mentioned earlier, in restorative justice. And in addition, everything I do is by way of discernment, which in an organization takes shape for me as collaboration. And I have a very collaborative and conversational leadership style. So, which again, it's very much like women religious operate. They model this beautifully. It is something that I have learned um, in being amongst them. And most importantly, I have been deeply formed by the Congregation of St. Joseph and by my restorative justice training in the unlearning necessary for anti-white supremacy work especially as a white woman, this is really critical. And so therefore I center race in everything I do. Um, I am uncomfortable all the time. And I, and when I am too comfortable, I know that there is something wrong because I am not sharing in the lived experiences of my BIPOC brothers and sisters. So those are the, the ways that I, um, have approached this in church leadership more broadly, I hope that I will live that out as networks leader as well. Holding on this idea of, of you know, church leadership, I think historically women religious, you know, in, including network, um, have been at the forefront of Catholic social justice movements, um, but they haven't always been recognized in positions of leadership within the church hierarchy. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm curious, and I, I think Network is so fascinating in this way, you know, how has Network carved out this leading voice on social justice and policy from this perspective, this unique perspective of, of a women's religious organization? Thank you for that question, and it's a really important one. Um, what I have learned over these months of conversations with the Network board, as I was discerning, and we were all discerning, um, and now with the superb staff at Network, what I've learned is that Network has become a leading voice in social justice and policy in the United States by doing what Catholic women religious have done since the beginning. They center its policy on real people and real struggles and center its work there. And then out of their deep Catholic faith, Catholic women religious, and now so many of us who are inspired by them, they radically critique our society and bring the ideals of love and equality into the political space that is generally defined by power and hierarchy. That's a very Jesus way to proceed, so to speak. <laughs> so, so when they formed Network almost 50 years ago, the women religious did this with politics as a mode of solidarity bringing in those who are generally excluded, centering political action on human dignity, and the notion that every person is immensely holy and deserving of love. So for Holy Week, uh, last week, I reread Pope Francis's encyclical, 
uh, Fratelli Tutti. And chapter five is entitled A Better Kind of Politics. As I read it, I wondered if the women religious who have worked at Network over these 50 years had ghost written it because that is what they have been doing this whole time. It is so wonderful to see our Ignatian inspired Pope that he agrees with them. <laughs> um, and this is what Network will continue to do. Um, and so there's leadership without recognition that is still very powerful. Yeah, I think that's very true. And I, you know, from my own personal experience, that model is something that very much animated me when I was, you know, 16. Um, you know, like my religion teachers would talk about Catholic social teaching and particularly we spent a lot of time talking about the conflict in El Salvador and the four um, women religious who were who were assassinated there. Um, and that stuck with me that, you know, that idea of, of a very profound, I think, um, personal witness, but also this this transcendent idea of social justice and, you know, what we're called to do in society to break down those, those barriers. Um, yeah. is is something that I think is still so powerful in, in the Catholic model. And I do think we have, you know, many women religious to thank for that. I wholeheartedly agree. So I think, you know, jumping forward a little bit um, network in the last uh, maybe eight or so years has really, you know, gained visibility through its, its nuns on the bus campaigns. And I think it's, it's again, a really powerful example of, of that public witness. Um, but I'm curious how you think, you know, Catholics more broadly can engage in this kind of public witness in, in 2021, you know, right now. Well, the first thing uh, we at Network suggest is getting involved in your local community, focusing both on what is needed there and what you are most attracted to working on. And this harkens back to that incredibly important prayer that it's attributed to Oscar Romero, right? That uh, we can't do everything. So we need to begin focusing on where, where we are drawn because what I've learned over these decades of working um, in movements for the common good in the, in the faith-based world is that, we, is that in addition to not being able, not being capable of working on everything, when we choose one thing that we are attracted to, we can then stay with it for the long haul, right? Otherwise, we just have it be something that uh, dissipates our energy. And what Pope Francis uh, talks about, you've got to start in encounter. And now that the vaccinations are, are being stepped up and people are able to, to encounter each other again, first and foremost, go out to those who have been forced to the margins and encounter. Get your hands dirty in the nitty gritty reality which is what we talk about in Jesuit circles. You know, you've got to just get your hands dirty and then research the issue that it uh, undergirds what the struggles that you have encountered with the folks who are pushed to the margins and do some research and get involved in the structural change necessary to address it. If it's a federal issue, become a member of network and we will help you in education, organizing and lobbying. We have 
extraordinary experience um, materials and lots of experienced people on staff. You can check our website, networklobby.org. And if you sign up on social media, you'll even receive more information on a pretty consistent basis. Things are moving very fast in the political scene on Capitol Hill today. And it's very exciting. And so sign up for the social media. uh, uh, What we send out on social media, sign up for our website, get involved locally. What gives you, you know, hope for the future right now? I think it's what I referenced before. As we come out of this shared experience of the pandemic, which I think also made it possible for people to see the lynching of George Floyd for what it was, right? I'm seeing this surge of response to the wrongs of his killing, but what it means for black bodies in our country and for what the pandemic has revealed of the inequities in our in our systems. So the, this response seems to just be rising up at a level that I've never seen in my lifetime. And that gives me great hope. It gives me incredible hope that these leaders are coming forward. Um, Reverend Barber as one, and we could go through a long list, right? That, and he says, is this the third reconstruction? And if I, I tend to believe that it is, and to be part of it fills me with great hope. I really hope so too. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk with us, Mary. Um, it's, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you, Megan. It's been very delightful for me as well. And I'm so happy to meet you. If you want to support or get involved with Network Lobby, we've put some links in the show notes. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The communications team is Mike Jordan-Lasky, Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at Jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit Justice, on Instagram at WeAreTheJesuits, and at Facebook.com slash Jesuits. If you're interested in discerning a vocation with the Jesuits, visit BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. And subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.